Welcome back to October, and what a special month October is for Kaleidopods. By the time you're listening to this, it's the end of the month, but this is a very special time of year for myself. The 6th of October is the birthday of my son Tristan, and I'm a year older after the 20th of October as well. Fortunately, the glamorous Naresh made sure I had a lovely day, and that Tristan had a lovely day as well. Anyway, here are some wonderful programmes from the Kaleidoscope Archive. These are audio recordings of things that we've found over the years, starting with something from the collection of David Owens, a Southern TV engineer who's now sadly passed away. This is Celebrity Challenge from Bogner, 25th of October, 1967. You often see the letters VSOP on a bottle of French cognac. What do they mean? VSOP. Do you think that's it? It would, it would fit. Yes. Very special old pail. Yes, think. that's right. <laughs> Good six points to you. <laughs> now, uh, would you like one uh, headed group terms? That's rather like a, like a flock of sheep, so to speak. That would be a group term. I'll try. Try. What is a flock of geese called? No help from the audience, please. <laughs> begins with G. <laughs> you heard that from the audience, I know. So I'll give you five seconds. Um, a gang. <laughs> a gang of geese. <laughs> you beat them in the street with the revolvers. It's a gaggle. <laughs> a gaggle. So no marks to you. And we, uh, that's the end of the round. There's the score. Only three points between the two sides. Mm-hmm. The Stevens 36 and the Trumans 33. <laughs> Humphrey. English literature. Yes, I'll try. Who wrote She Stoops to Conquer? Two minutes to go. She Stoops to Conquer. I'm not sure. Was it Shaw? It wasn't, and I'm not sure. Was it Shaw? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Oliver Goldsmith. No marks there. Grosvenor Stevens. Modern English books. Um. Yes, please. Who wrote the Captain Hornblower series of books? He died recently. Uh, C.S. Forrester. Is right. C.S. Forrester, three marks. Christine, would you like a question about a famous English queen? No, I'll take a six. You'll take a six. <laughs> All right, said she, looking at the scoreboard. All together now. Name two famous English painters of horses. Mannings went to the same school as I did. Yes, that's one very good one indeed. Must have one more, I'm afraid. Anybody else go to your school? (laughs) (laughs) No? No, No, I'm afraid that must be, that was a six point, so six to the Stevens. George Stubbs was another very famous one, and a chap called Herring. There we are. Collar Herring. Olive, in the garden. Oh, with Maud? Yeah, come in the garden, yes. Yes, please. The black button night has flown, you know. <laughs> Extraordinary thing. What's the popular name for the flower called Myosotis? Myosotis. Oh, forget me not. Forget me not. Three points. Nell, famous horses. Oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. Three or six? Six. <laughs> six altogether on this. In five seconds. All right. Two, two parts to this in five seconds. First of all, how many pennies are there in a dozen? Quickly. In a dozen pennies, there's 12. Yes, all right. Now, in five seconds. How many Haydenes are there in a dozen? Quick. Twelve. That's right, yes. Very good. <laughs> Six points for you. 
And that is the end of the contest, and the score is the Stevens have got 48 and the Trumans 39. And I must say, this has been wonderful fun, this series. We never like to see our runners-up go away without any form of uh, prize at all, or any memento of a very happy occasion. If I can reach it down here, which I think I can, I've got some flowers for the Truman family, and we'll give them there to Christine and Nell, really. They're not yours, are they? Thank, Thank you very much for playing with us. Thank you. Now I think the person to really receive this uh, very handsome challenge trophy, we'll give this to Olive with our compliments and thanks for playing so nicely. Thank you so Many much. Many congratulations. May I just say to you, Humphrey and Christine and Nell, how much we've enjoyed meeting you and playing with you. And I'm sure, Christine, you won't grudge us this one cup from all the ones <laughs> you've <laughs> Thank you, kind sir. Well, we've all enjoyed Thank you all for, for looking at us. And I hope we meet again very soon. Until then, goodbye. Now, Adrian Bishop Laggett recorded a lot of audio over the years. He was a sound engineer for the BBC, and he donated a lot of it back to the Lost Shows radio campaign circa 2011. This is Morecambe and Wise being interviewed on the 17th of October, 1963. If somebody said to you, um, Ernie White, uh, here is Eric Morecambe, what do you think about Eric Morecambe? This is what I think of it. Well, not, uh, this, you, this can be either, you can either say now serious or whichever way. Uh, yeah. You know, someone says, there's Eric Morgan, he's up on the platform and you're sitting down yeah, in the so stalls and you're faint. What do you think about it? I'd say, what a funny looking fella. <laughs> no, he's got a very funny face, he makes me laugh. <laughs> Anything about what he says? Um, yes, I know for a fact that if he goes into a restaurant and uh, he's going to have a steak, I know when the man says, what would you like for vegetables? He says, I'll have a few peas. He said that now for this last 15 years. <laughs> he always has peas when he has <laughs> steak, you know. You don't know why? <laughs> no, I think he likes peas. <laughs> Fine, now I'm having the brain for something else to say. I know, it's difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about any funny story? How do we like? Uh, funny stories. Yes. Yes. Isn't a true funny story actually that's happened to, that happened to you in relation to Ernie? Or one something that's happened to him? Funny story that you in fact sat back and laughed at this particular one about Ash. Um. Yeah. Well, this is a thing that needs thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the point. You know. Yeah. I mean, there obviously are. You yeah. know. But are there any little things about him, for instance, that make you laugh? Apart from bees. <laughs> um. He wears some funny hats. Really? Oh yes, he likes all sorts of sporting type hats. He appear actually with them, do you? Mm -hmm. On the stage? No, no. But he's personal taste, he wears all sorts of tweedy hats. Different kinds of hats all the time. Does he, um, when you talk about each other, on the, on the screen, on the, on the telly, when, when in fact you, when you're doing Optimus sort of thing, do you think that when you do this, um, is this, an, is this as much an act? as it appears to be, or in fact, are you close enough, as it were, as a team, to be talking, shall we say, this is the thing that you're just translating what you talk, how you talk in normal life, 
I would say that the relationship that now comes over, it didn't used to, but now comes over between Eric and I on television is the relationship we have in normal life. Uh, it is not an act, it's the real thing. And when I say to him, what are you doing? This is the thing I say to him in real life. Is it? And he says, well, I was only going to try, I thought it would be a good idea. I said, no, 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 no. Says, That's a silly thing. You know it's a silly thing to do. She says, yeah, but I thought it was uh, the right thing to do. And, and uh, that is the sort of situation. For instance, which reminds me, you're asking me about a funny story. When I went to the hotel in Liverpool, we stayed, Eric and I stayed at the same hotel. And when I arrived in the hotel, the, um, the porter said, he arrived this morning. I said, who? He says, Mr. Morgan. I said, oh, good. He says, he, uh, he had a light lunch and, and everything, and, uh, and uh, I think he's gone to the pictures now. I said, what are you telling me for? He says, well, you look after him, don't you? you know? He says, and I kept getting these reports all the time of what he was doing as if <laughs> I was his keeper, you know? <laughs> he was if he wasn't capable. He's an idiot all the time, which he isn't, of course. Uh, well, we're just off for a minute, actually. How long have we been working? Yeah, I saw him going out, shaking. Yeah. Do you tell him the truth, Phil? Ah, you tell me better than that. Well, we, how long did he say we've been together? He said we've been together now for 15 or no longer. Oh, longer than that, yeah. She tells lies. Uh, oh, about 23, 1939 we met. Right. Hmm. Very good. And what's he like? What's he like to work with? Oh, he's, he's all right. He's fine. He's, he's got everything that I could ask for, you know. Money. I always ask for that. He's got it. He's good to be with. Uh, he was telling me, actually, that when you do, in fact, the act very often, yeah. uh, it isn't nowadays so much an act. Well, it is an act, you know. Mm. But, in fact, you translate, you know, when you're on stage, mm. it's very often what you are off stage. You yes, well, we try and, we try and, uh, and develop this relationship of, of two normal people, only just slightly exaggerated. That's all it is. You know, I mean, we talk about normal things and we work on TV about most about normal things. He said, in fact, for instance, that you were, that a lot of people, even in everyday life, yeah. seem to look on him as being your keeper. Is this well, they do. They do that. That is true, yes. It's definitely when you go out, where's your mate? Always, you know. If I, if I happen to go out alone, it's where's your mate? You know, it's, it's as if I've got him in my pocket. Because he's small enough to go in. <laughs> These are the short, fat hairies. Um, as, as people, you're obviously different in, in your own lives, in your separate lives, when you go your own ways and this sort of Oh, yes, yeah. Um, just standing about, looking at, looking at Ernie, I, I don't know how much you know about, about this, but what, what, how would you say, what is Ernie as a bloke? We know when you look at Ernie, what do you feel about Ernie? What do you think? Uh, well, the, the impression he gives to me, if I was a stranger looking at him, you mean, I would just say likeable. And that's all he can say about him, you know. It's not true, but that's all he can say about him. Fine. Do you happen to remember any funny story in relation to Ernie? Well, to me, there's no individual story that stands out in my mind. He's, to me, he's funny since I first met him 23 years ago. He's one of the few people that can really make me laugh. And it's when we're working together that it's, it's, it's a thing that you can't say it's there. And he just makes me laugh. I know what he's thinking minutes before he thinks it, or before he says it anyway. And I, I know it's vice versa with him. Very often, actually, when, mm. when, you, when you see the act, uh, you're usually the idiot, if I may say so. Yeah. And he's the straight man. Yeah. In fact, it isn't, a, it isn't as simple as this. No, no. Uh, basically, what it is is I'm... He's an idiot, you see, but I'm a bigger idiot. On. It's the other way around, off. Yeah. Right. Any ideas, Ted? It's a, well, um, I was just thinking, it, it, as, um, 
Has any ever sort of stopped you in your tracks on a show by, by fluffing or forgetting these lines or anything like that? Well, originally, uh, if that happened, say, five or six years ago, we would both stop. If one of us had a blackout or a, what we call a blackout, you know, if it stopped, we would both stop. But now we get over it by making a gag about it, telling them that we've stopped, telling the audience that we've stopped, and uh, going back again and starting again, and it works somehow. Yeah, I think this is actually one of the things where everybody feels in touch with you, in fact, because... Could be, yes. In, in, yes, in, yeah. Well, it's a normal thing. I mean, people can't go all the way through life speaking perfectly, talking exactly the, the right thing at the right time. Somebody's about to fluff somewhere along the line. And oh. he, do, he fluffs, all right. <laughs> Ernie, on, Ernie on stage is Ernie up, in fact. More or less, yes. Yes, only a smarter on. And here's a studio recording from what was then called the Terry Scott Show, which was later called Scott On from the 6th of September 1970. When we come to the law on censorship, of course, in these modern novels, I mean, you don't know where people stand, do you? Well, of course, in modern novels, they don't stand for very long, do they? <laughs> but when a publisher is publishing a new novel, he doesn't know whether he's going to end up with a best-selling novel or the worst-selling Parkhurst. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, uh, about your novel, uh, of course, it's not the sort of novel we usually publish, specialising as we do in, uh, in children's books. No, well, of course, it isn't written for children. I should hope not. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sure it is. No, it's very, it's very... Um, adult. Adult. Adult, yes. Very, in fact, I might almost say uh, too... Uh, oh. uh, Won't you publish it, then? Oh, 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 no, no, no. No, 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 I didn't say that. No, we are a very old publishing firm. We do try to, you know, we, we try... We are we're willing to try almost ab absolutely anything. Anything. Very much like this heroine of yours in the, uh, in the book. Um, well, at least you've ripped. Oh, I have. Uh, several times. Um, <laughs> we all have been... Um, we agree. We agree. It's, uh... Oh, uh it's... Furthermore, it has a feeling of, uh, uh, Authenticity. Oh, it does. It, it... Oh, yes. One feels the heroine was describing things which had actually happened. Oh, they did, yeah. Oh, I, I did <laughs> Well, I, I not, surely not to, to, uh, to you. Uh... Oh, but of course, everyone. I mean, it did take me three years to write. It's a lot. <laughs> well, had time to make a note of anything, the way you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you... Do you feel yeah. that it is what the public wants? Yeah, they don't very often get it, but I mean, this is... <laughs> uh, regarding the book, we may have to make one or two titsy-witsies or alterations. Oh, no, I, I don't think I can agree. Now, please, Miss, uh, you know, just one or two. I mean, we shall... Well, mm -hmm. supposing I refuse, what will you do? About 18 months, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shan't, Cold. You see, um, just one or two, you know, little things. Yes, it's the four-letter words, isn't it? No, 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 not entirely, no. No, in, in any case, some of your four-letter words are generally spoke with five or six. <laughs> and even the ones that aren't. I mean, uh, that one is not spoke with a Q. Uh, <laughs> I never spoke it with a... I mean, at first, I did have some difficulty in making out what actually happened, you know, what she actually happened to. But that, that is not a problem of the, the spelling. I mean, that's no problem. The proofreader or the compositor will, provided they don't give notice, I mean, no. <laughs> well, of course, you know, I don't claim to be good at spelling. No, you shouldn't. You can't be good at everything, no. It's just that one or two words, I, I mean, how, how would you pronounce uh, that? This, for example, uh, M U H G T H uh, G H U U H H. How would you pronounce that? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you couldn't tell that from the spelling, could you? <laughs> 
really? How would you pronounce it? Well, yeah, I think. <laughs> you won't make my mind. Now, shall we, shall we go to uh, uh, well, uh, something specific like uh, Chapter 7? Now, I'm wondering if it's a good idea to have that uh, incident um, on, on the floor. No, it has to be on the floor. I know that, but I mean, um, <laughs> now you have to be on the floor of the House of Commons. <laughs> of course, it actually happens whilst they are debating the Moral Offences Bill. De debating, yes, but demonstrating, you know. <laughs> See, we may be in deep waters here because you have said that these incidents actually did... Yes, all right. Well, they actually did, but not in the House of Commons. It was in another house. It was in a private house. A private... Yes. Nobody can get in. Uh, you can't. No, you don't. No. I've got time anyway. The, no. Um, no. The coming to the chapter nine. I think the unusual behaviour by the four Portuguese fishermen on top of the lighthouse. <laughs> well, the lighthouse is purely symbolic. I mean, it is a very obvious Freudian symbol. Well, you all know that. Yes, it's a symbol of light and darkness. But I mean. Uh, <laughs> But the, the Portuguese fishermen and the heroine, I mean, do they symbolise anything apart from tremendous agility? Uh, <laughs> remaining on top of the lighthouse? They, no, uh, no, not really, no. Uh, I mean, you're, you're sure it doesn't, uh, it's not symbolic? No, no, not that part, no. In that case, it's just plain uh, funny. <laughs> Frank, 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 yes. Oh, uh, don't tell me you're shocked. Oh, good heavens, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a prude. I mean, <laughs> I'm far from it, in fact, <laughs> quite the opposite. When we get to know each other a little better, I, I hope to, uh, I hope very much to uh, make a few cuts here, otherwise I'm going to be a good <laughs> Well, then, what? Well, first of all, there's the chapter where she, uh, she couldn't... Oh. Uh, and then there is the uh, bit in the circus, uh, in midair with the incredible flying Fosdyke. Oh, yeah. uh, and then with the symphony orchestra while they're performing the Enigma Variation. <laughs> and the pop, pop group in the Turkish bars. And then there's the astronomer. <laughs> The astronomers were in the planetarium. <laughs> My book! There's nothing left! Oh, well, there's not. There's a good ten to twelve pages, yeah. I mean, we've left it all of the bunny club. We've taken out the 14 naval stokers, but I mean, you know. <laughs> We'll have a chat with it about it after we've eaten. You have ruined my book. Oh, no, you can write another one after dinner. <laughs> I can't. You see, I haven't had any more experiences. Yes, but you haven't had dinner yet, have you? <laughs> The Forcey Show uh, hardly exists at all at the BBC, but we have quite a lot of them, thanks to Bob Monkhouse. This is the 94th edition from the 11th of November 1952, starring Terry Thomas. From the moustache and gramophone needle, we turn to the carnation and the cigarette holder, and a man who keeps the dollar gap right there in his upper set. The only man in the business who can drink lemonade through a straw with clenched teeth. Here we have the horse's best friend, Terry Hyphen Thomas. How do you do? <laughs> I hope I find you in the best of spirits and thoroughly enjoying yourselves, are you? Good show. I wasn't going to bring that uh, horse thing up again, but I noticed Mr. Murdoch referred to it a second ago. You may have heard of a little incident that I had. Shall we say a, a mal de mer? <laughs> I was supposed to have fallen off the horse. Actually, the horse fell and rolled on, rolled on me, actually. 
one newspaper got it a bit mixed up and said I was wearing a roll-on. <laughs> Ridiculous. Never wear a roll-on when I'm riding. But, um, well, now, to proceed with the broadcast, I do hope you'll excuse me, but this evening I, I have an urge to talk about girls. Silly out there. I know it's the last thing you chaps in the forces are interested in. <laughs> well, probably far better if I talked to you about something that might advance your service career, like how to get down on your hands and knees. <laughs> or, even, or even better... Something instructive like how to fire a machine gun. Of course, I'd forgotten. Ted Ray showed you that, didn't he? Well, but to, to get back to my subject, which is the fair sex, so-called because they expect you always to pay their fare. <laughs> get out of it. As you, as you are probably aware, there are two things which are sent to try us, women and judges. The main difference between them being that judges spend most of their time handing out a stretch feel out the other one. Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, the two women are probably more interesting. After all, it's not much fun sitting in the back of a cinema with a judge, is it? <laughs> as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, I don't know about you chaps, but in my family, we've all, always been terribly interested in girls. Not to the exclusion of everything else, of course. Personally, I like to divide my time equally between girls and opening my Christmas presents. However, <laughs> However, I, I know that a lot of you chaps in the forces, particularly one stationed abroad, are often curiously attracted by the female of the species, despite the many exciting diversions applied for you, like foreign language classes and so on. <laughs> I know, as a matter of fact, because when I had the good fortune to be a private in the army, I had occasion to spend, <laughs> to spend a night in a camp in Germany once. I was going down the corridor, uh, the hut corridor, rather late, on my way to say goodnight to the Sergeant Major, actually. And I, um... And I, uh, I noticed two or three chaps making their way stealthily towards a back window. As they approached, it opened, and two other soldiers climbed in. One of them whispered, Shh, we've been out after hours. And one of the other parties said, Really? We're just going out after hours? <laughs> Which, um, <clears throat> incidentally, brings me out of the gist of this talk, which is foreign affairs. A certain amount of caution. <laughs> a certain amount of caution is necessary in this direction. I mean, it's no earthly use going out to a girl abroad and saying, Good evening, I'm LAC2 Charlie Brown, 765432, attached to number two maintenance unit PRO. How about it? <laughs> Why, she won't know what you're talking about. You've got to adapt yourself to the country you're in. If you're in France, you greet them in France, in French. If you're in German, in Germany, in German. If you're in China, you just have a game of darts in the canteen. <laughs> Apart from the, the language difficulties, of course, there are the local customs to observe. Now, for instance, if you want to go out with a girl in Holland, it's customary to ask the mother first. It's tricky, that, because it's not half so much fun going out with mum, is it? <laughs> no. Time marches on, though I, I would like to tell you lots of other stories. I have had a request, actually, from an old Sergeant Major friend of mine, Sergeant Major Rain. You won't be surprised to hear, of course, that he's referred to as the Shire. And um, <laughs> he's asked me if I will do an impersonation of Emma Sumac singing when the Sergeant Major's on parade. <laughs> Pulling my leg. And, um, <laughs> so I'd like very much, if I may, with the help of Mr. Stanley Black and the... Uh, 
these gentlemen, to give you a very slight impression of the ink spots singing the same song. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here on parade in square. Oh, passing by, turn and stare. For we see this beast. And is the man is scorched. Pick him up. Pick him up. Jump to it, my lad. Is that the way? Is that the way we want Waterloo, honey child? Oh, while recruits tie or fight oh, in the sergeant majors Now here's Bob Munkhouse and Dennis Goodwin being interviewed on Radio Luxembourg 208 about their new TV series, Fast and Loose. This is early October 1954. One particular television show, Fast and Loose, which came on last week, and I want to meet the two people who are concerned in it, Bob Monkhouse and Dennis Goodwin. And by a strange coincidence, here they are. Well, uh, Bob Monkhouse and Dennis Goodwin, is that who we are? Oh, thank goodness for that. For a minute, I thought we were Morecambe and Wise. I knew I wasn't wise. But you're pretty stupid. I'm pretty in any state. How about the country? Name one. Belgium. Not Belgium, Belgium. The Belgium. What makes you say that? My uncle's eyes. What uncle? The cleaner. What does he clean? Windows. Where? The college. Which college? Rodin. And he's Belgian? No, not Belgian, Belgian. What's Belgian? My uncle's eyes. Oh, I, I see. Can... That's where we came in, I think. <laughs> I'm getting a little confused by all this. Can I ask you some straight, sensible questions and hope for some sensible answers, Bob? Just about that. You think so? Yes, for instance. And you, Dennis? Can I? We'll do our best. We're not used to this sort of Thing. You're not, really. You prefer to be crazy, do you? Well, it's all we know, really. Well, if you're not crazy, you're going nuts sometimes in this business. Well, true enough. Did you meet crazy, or did you get like that when you got together? Well, we managed to get along isolated, you know, in our own crazy ways for some time. Mm-hmm. I was in paving, and he was in radios, and then we got together and started uh, scripting about seven years ago. Yeah. And we're doing it ever since? Yes, and going a little crazier every day. But Somebody gave us pens for Christmas, you know, and we had to use them to do something <laughs> with them. Have they got ink in them? Uh, no, no, that's why um, our first script didn't get many laughs, you know. I see, yes. Nobody could read it except the stencil operator. I'm the invisible man. We got Vincent Price over from... <laughs> oh, you brought him, did you? He's an old friend of mine. Well, now, seriously, you, you started seven years ago, did you? Mm-hmm. And uh, you've been working out in radio and television and so on ever since? Well, that's right. We've written for about every name comic in this country, one or two from the States, too. Bob Hope's our particular pride. We wrote for him last year, and we've been sending bits and pieces of material to him, and... Uh, uh, we wrote a couple of shows for American radio for him too, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and Judy Canover and one or two other American people who came over here. Yes, but uh, just about m- most of the uh, top comedy names. Um, well, it's the Jack Buchanan. But it's seventy-one, of course, Jack Buchanan. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you break into that? Then, I'm guessing the American uh, stars in particular. Well, on various things, they came into the Forza show when we were writing it, and mm-hmm. um, more or less as guest stars, you know. I see. Um, Johnny Ray and. Billy Eckstein, Rosemary Clooney, people like that came over the show into the showband shows. Yeah, we're doing that. 
And so they liked the material you, you gave them during those shows, and then they said, write me a show for myself, did they? Yes, they were a little crazy. More or less the way happened. <laughs> they must have been a little crazy, but still, <laughs> a very happy craziness. Well, you started last Wednesday, didn't you? Oh, it was a television show. Yes, yeah. we did. As a matter of fact, we started May the 12th, but... Uh, uh, I know you, you got ill, Bob, didn't you? Well, we were yes. working or something. It was perhaps your partner drove you mad, did he, Dennis? No, as a matter of fact, I was breaking in well, Norman Wisdom's act. Chest, then. And <laughs> I decided to fall down. No, actually, I, we were just exhausted. We'd uh, prepared the Arthur Askey series, Hello Playmates, for radio at the time, yes. and doing the first TV show, and then working all day in a hot theatre. Afterwards, I went to sleep, and I happened to be standing up when I did it, and everyone thought I'd collapsed. That was As soon as he hit his head on the floor, he was all right again. <laughs> <laughs> and resumed writing lying down. Yes. Mercy. All right, well, now this new show. Anything we can learn about that? I wasn't able to see it last Wednesday myself, I'm afraid I was away. You mad You'd have been listening to Luxembourg at the time, anyway. I would have been, of course. Or reading the picture post, one of those. Well, at the same time. Oh, quite easy. I can listen and read at the same time. I don't say you can read and write at the same time, can't you? Well, we frequently do. It's a little difficult, actually, because I write and I can't read, and Bob reads and he can't write. That's why we make such a good partnership. Yeah, yes. Oh, well, well, thank you very much. Goodbye is the best I can say to you after that. Bob Monkhouse and Dennis Goodwin, thank you very much for a sample which has driven me completely crazy of the kind of thing to expect. Welcome to the club. Coming a bit more recently up to date, though not much, Going Places, Radio 4, 8th of October 1982. Going to play you a small bit of that. Then we're going to play the news and The Archers, which comes after it, which is the only surviving extract from The Archers for that edition. Well, we've been testing a Japanese-built Japanese car, which will also be at the show. It's the Honda Civic Sport, a two-door hatchback, 1,335cc, with a five-speed gearbox. But at £4,495, it's £650 more expensive than the ordinary Honda Civic. So what, I asked Tom Boswell, do you get for the difference? Well, perhaps the first and most significant thing is the different engine cylinder head. The basic block's the same, it's still just over 1300cc, same as the basic Civic, but you get an extra 10 horsepower due to the redesigned head. Surprisingly enough, it has a slightly, very slightly lower compression ratio, so the car still uses two-star fuel, that's the basic low minimum octane stuff. The other most important difference is the suspension. This is a lowered suspension, completely different wheels and tyres, much heavier duty shock absorbers with sick competition type anti-roll bars front and rear, and that makes the car handle completely differently. On the cosmetic side, you've got a different steering wheel, you've got spoilers front and rear, although some people would claim they made a difference. I suspect the difference is only noticeable when you've got severe crosswinds on motorways and that sort of thing, and marginal difference in fuel consumption at top speeds. Presumably, the car that you would compare this with would be something like the Sporty Metro, the MG version of the Metro, which is, what, another £300? Yes, it's an obvious competitor for that, but I suspect that if you wanted the MG version, you'd get your £300 difference back within the first, say, two to three years, because the MG has a lower insurance premium, a much lower insurance premium. It obviously depends where you live and how old you are as to how much difference that would make to you personally. It also has much cheaper spare parts and much easier serviceability in the case of an accident, hence the lower insurance premiums. But the MG has much more space and I suspect has better aerodynamics because it has a slightly higher top speed and very slightly better acceleration figures. But doesn't handle as well, perhaps? It doesn't handle nearly as well as this car. This car actually handles very, very well. And I sound surprised because I am surprised. I didn't think the Japanese knew how to build a car to handle the road so well. But this handles very, very well indeed, and it's a great pleasure to drive. 
How would you compare the finish of the two? I think the MG is better finished if you can stand all those MG badges which they've stuck all over the thing on all, almost every component has an MG badge. I think the MG finish is better. I don't like this inevitable plastic all over look that seems to come with the Japanese cars. But I must say of the Japanese cars I think the Hondas are the best finished. One thing of course you do avoid if you buy the British car, the Metro, is the inevitable pigeon English that still lurks around these Japanese cars. And in the boot there are some straps for fitting the sunroof which is removable in its plastic wallet. And the instructions read, fix the belt to avoid the packet. And they mean shifting, Clive, but they've left out that F. Tom Boswell at the wheel of the Honda Civic Sport, 4,495 pounds. Uh, just gone two minutes to seven. Eric, who's getting bogged down on the roads tonight? Well, I think anybody who's driving northbound on the M11 near Junction 8 at Bishop Stortford might be. And certainly tomorrow, those who are using the A406 North Circular Road just east of Staples Corner will have something to worry about because there'll only be one lane each way from, in fact, eight tonight until six tomorrow morning. The M1 southbound will be closed at 8 tonight until 8 tomorrow morning from the M10 junction down as far as Junction 5, Watford and Harrow. And if you're going west on the A40, well, from White City outwards, believe me, there are roadworks there that cause a lot of problems. Eric, thank you. We were talking about the advertising business a few minutes ago. Of course, the best intentions of the ad men do go wrong occasionally. Overheard the other day at a railway station a conversation between an elderly couple who were looking at one of those poster advertisements for a car. Top speed, 114 mph, proclaimed the poster. Nought to 60 in 14 seconds. E love, see that, said the lady. 114 miles in 14 seconds. That's not bad. Cheerio. That was certainly Going Places. Going Places was presented by Clive Jacobs and produced by Jeff Dobson. The editor was Roger MacDonald. And this is Radio 4. BBC News at 7 o'clock. Mrs Thatcher has promised to hold her present course and not change policies in pursuit of votes. A group of ambulancemen in Manchester have decided to accept the government's pay offer. The veteran peace campaigner, Lord Noel Baker, has died at the age of 92. The Prime Minister, in a speech winding up the Conservative Party conference at Brighton, has said the government will stick firmly to policies of the last three years. She said the British people had grown to understand that the government would not make false promises, especially for an election. To do so would be a betrayal. Inflation and interest rates were falling and confidence was returning. High unemployment had been caused by yesterday's mistakes. The government was doing its part to rectify this. The rest was up to both sides of industry and partnership. Mrs Thatcher had opened her speech by saying that the past 12 months had been a year of the unexpected, but the spirit of the Falklands campaign had been the spirit of Britain at her best. She had praise for the armed forces, not only those who had been in the South Atlantic, but those in Northern Ireland and the soldiers in the London bombings. Turning to Labour's defence policy, she said their call for unilateral nuclear disarmament was hypocritical because it meant Britain sheltering behind America. A strong, united Western alliance was Britain's guarantee of peace and security. A new road damage tax on lorries has been announced in a package of measures designed to lessen the impact of heavy vehicles on the environment. The Transport Secretary, Mr David Howell, told the Brighton Conference that he was also going to make it compulsory for lorries to be fitted with side and rear guards and equipment to cut down road spray. 
he also indicated that the maximum weight of lorries is to go up. The Education Secretary, Sir Keith Joseph, was jostled by demonstrators as he went into the conference centre to listen to Mrs Thatcher's speech. Later, he said he'd been spat at, and he thought he may have been hit in the back. Sir Keith apparently walked on the wrong side of a police barricade, where 500 people had gathered to shout at ministers and MPs entering the building. 150 ambulancemen in central Manchester have voted to accept the government's latest pay offer. They say they'll go against the policy of their union, New Pay, and will work normally during a regional day of action next week. The men say they're fed up with the way the dispute has dragged on. But the northwest organiser of Newby, Mr Colin Barnett, has described their move as irresponsible. He said the Manchester ambulancemen were wrong, were among the most highly paid in the region, and their attitude was not supported by others. The latest regional day of action has taken place in the southwest of England. Some hospitals have been reduced to accident and emergency services only, but it seems there's been little effect outside the health service. The TUC have chosen November the 8th as the day on which transport workers will stage their national action in support of the health workers. The building societies say home buyers can expect a big cut in their mortgage interest charges next month. The reduction is not likely to be less than 1% and it could be more. The societies decided against cutting rates at their meeting today as they expect the big banks to cut their rates again very soon. So by waiting for another month, the societies hope they'll be able to make one reduction which will last for several months. On the stock exchange, share prices reached a new record this morning, breaking through the 600 mark to reach 600.1. But later, prices fell, and at the close, the index was down 6.5 on the day at 592.9. BL's 38,000 car workers have been offered a two-year pay package, which would mean annual increases of up to £5.50 a week. The company's Director of Employee Relations, Mr Jeff Armstrong, said the two-year deal would give the workforce greater confidence and help BL rebuild its image as new models were introduced. Union officials, who had submitted a demand for an extra £16 a week over 12 months, have decided to reconvene a delegate conference in Coventry next week to consider the offer. Lord Noel Baker, the veteran peace campaigner, has died at his home in London. He was 92. A former Labour MP and minister, he devoted much of his life to the cause of international peace and cooperation. And for this, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. As a young man, he was involved in the formation of the League of Nations and later played a leading part in the United Nations. The Lebanese Prime Minister, Mr. Shafiq Al-Wazan, has announced a surprising new cabinet containing no members of parliament. After 13 and a half hours of meetings with the new president, Mr. Amin Jamal, the Prime Minister named a cabinet consisting of lawyers, engineers, academics and businessmen. Our correspondent in Beirut says there's already a general approval because all sides agree that it's time the government set about the task of rebuilding the country. BBC Radio News. Just look ahead to the world tonight at 10 o'clock when John Morgan will be talking to Vice Chairman of the Labour Party, Eric Heffer, about what we in Britain can do to help solidarity as the Polish Parliament debates a measure to make the movement illegal. The world tonight begins at 10 o'clock tonight here on Radio 4. And now it's time for the archers, and Eddie's gone to the Country and Western Club, leaving Clary to do the washing up.
Why did Bob come in? Oh, Mrs. Pound, of course not. I'm just clearing up. Didn't have our tea till late. You go ahead. Only came over to bring back the cheese I borrowed. You came all the way over for that. You shouldn't have bothered. I can't last till tomorrow. Don't like borrowing at the best of times. Thanks. Right. Light cup of coffee or something? No, don't want to put you out. Oh, go on, Mrs. Pender was just going to put the kettle on. Oh, oh, all right then, thanks. Eddie's off at the Country Western Club. Joe's watching the box. Heart Song was a Red Effusion TV series, and this is uh, the programme Love, which is missing, from the 21st of June 1965. We found this on a tape belonging to Jack Woolgar, the actor. It's a lesson too late for the learning Made of sand, made of sand In the wink of an eye my soul is turning In your hand, in your hand Are you going away with no word of farewell? Will there be? a trace left behind I could have loved you better didn't mean to be unkind you know that was the last thing on my mind mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as I lie in my bed in the morning without you without you Every song in my breast I is born without you, without you. Are you going away with no word of farewell? Will there be not a trace left behind? I could have loved you better, didn't mean to be unkind. You know that was the last thing on my mind You know that was the last thing on my mind A spot of drama for you now then. This is Ring for Death, a play from the 31st of October 1973 found on one of Bob Monkhouse's cassette tapes. Please God, don't touch the dial, Betty. Please don't touch the dial. Oh, my God, it's engaged. Oh, Dr. Griffiths, Mrs. Price is on my phone, and Betty what? wants to be too hard. Out of my way. What's the matter with you? Betty, Betty, drop the phone, do you hear me? Drop it. Don't touch the dial. The police are on their way. Mrs. Price? Mrs. Price? Hang on, sir. I, I, I think I can hear her. Thank goodness you're all right. Look what on earth is going on. Well, first John comes on the phone like a madman, and now you try to break the front door down. May we come in, please? Yes, of course. Dr. Griffiths got through to you first, then? No, he didn't ring. I rang the office to speak to you. Hey, what? You dialed the number? Well, there's no other way of using a phone, is there? I said it was a lot of nonsense, didn't I? All this hoo-ha for nothing? You see, we thought the phone might be electrified. Is that what John was babbling about, but... But it's nonsense. There's only one way to settle it. We brought Fred here to have a look. Uh, may we, Mrs. Price? Of course, help yourself. It's all beyond me. Phone's in here, Fred. 
Oh. First thing is to find the power point. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's over there by the standard lamp. Look, what is all this, for heaven's sake? Hang on, I'll explain in a moment. Yes, by damn. There's a thin twin flex running from the plug down under the carpet. Does it go to the phone? Yes. Here it is. Up the back of the telephone table and into the base of the instrument itself. Yes, I see. Yes, here we are. Hey, be careful. Wait, I'll pull the plug out. There, it's dead now. Oh, we were right then. Fred, have a look at the phone itself. Will someone please explain what this is all about? I'm afraid it looks as if your husband didn't die of a heart attack after all, Mrs. Price. He was probably electrocuted. But that's nonsense. He, he was experienced with electricity most of his life. What is it, Fred? Well, I'm damned. There's a thin bare wire like fuse wire running up the handset to the earphone. See it? Yes, very neatly done. It's almost invisible. Oh, stuck on with plastic cement. One hand and an ear connected to earth, I'll bet. And the circuit completed with a dial and finger of the opposite hand. Oh, is that a dangerous combination? Oh, gives full mains voltage across both hands and head. But why the hell did he use it when he knew about it? Quite. Mrs. Price, you've used this phone several times. When your husband asked you to ring him yesterday, for example, and again yes. just now when you rang the office. Yes, yes I don't get it. Betty! Oh. Betty! Betty, darling, you're all right. John. John, do you know what Marvin tried to do to me? The phone! It was wired up, Doc. Just as we thought. All right, darling. Everything's fine now. No, no more troubles. Yes, but we can't see why it didn't affect Mrs. Price as it was supposed to, and yet it killed her husband. Well, I think I know. Hmm? I, I worked it out in the car on the way over. Betty, let's see your hands. Hands? Where are they? Where are what? Oh, I, don't, I don't get it. Your rubber gloves. The ones oh. I told you to wear. Oh, they're under that cushion with my gloves. apron. I, I pulled them off when I heard you were all coming over to see me. Here they are. You see? Thick rubber gloves. Perfect insulators against electricity. Thank God. It's my dermatitis. The gloves saved my skin, you see. Saved your skin all right this time, Mrs. Price. Saved your life, Betty. Everybody knows the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit nowadays, but J.R.R. Tolkien was better known for his books and not the films or TV series all those years ago when he died in September 73. Here's the end of the Tolkien tribute the BBC showed and the close down that followed it on the 3rd of September 1973. We're not going to play the whole national anthem to you, uh, because you know what it sounds like already. No, I don't at all like Tolkien or what he stands for. It seems to me that his work implies an escape from political and social reality. Now, uh, this seems, it seems to me is reprehensible. Uh, it's an implication of triviality, it's an implication of regression, a refusal to uh, face up to our political and social problems, our religious problems of today. And it, the cult of the Hobbit, uh, the cult of Tolkien in America particularly, seems to be responding to this uh, sort of failure in engagement with our political and social situation. The trouble is, of course, they make it sound like an intellectualized Dr. Doolittle. And no doubt before very long we'll have Lord of the Rings on ice with Millicent Martin and Margaret Rutherford. But it will become a cult, as it is a cult in America now, where the constant symbol is seen, Frodo lives.
I don't live in America. Surely they should tell me. I should like to ask them some questions how such things arise. I observe in general that uh, that uh, America has, uh, North America has always been much more easily kindled. Uh, England, or indeed any country in Europe. And for instance, um, the Dickens cult and the extraordinary excitement about uh, Dickens. So the only people who came down to the quay to watch the, the mail ship coming, the only thing they wanted to know was what happened to the next chapter. They weren't worried about goods. <laughs> it gives you a nice sort of in-feeling to meet another Tolkien enthusiast who will know when you make references to things in the story, as though, as though you're referring to history. As we do in Spectacle. Exactly, time. yes. <laughs> the obscurer the reference, the, the better you feel when somebody else gets it. A vast number, as I can judge from, from, the, from my very considerable fan mail, I should say that only a small proportion I possess, and even of those, not very many have really read the books with any attention. Well, I, of course, haven't actually read Tolkien, but I think it's marvellous. As if I go to a cocktail party or something like this, and spend 20 intensely boring minutes talking to a secretary <laughs> about her father's foot and mouth on the farm. I then ask her, have you read Tolkien? And they always have. And they give you the plot for the next half hour. And they eventually get to the land of the Kawardor. Sauron's country carried the ring. I think perhaps when he started off writing Lord of the Rings, as he's a philologist and an academic, he was most interested in the language. But the world that he created to, to hold the language took him over. I first began seriously to invent languages about uh, when I was 13 or 14. I've never stopped with really. Languages have a flavour to me which are I never understand people saying, saying for instance, it's awfully dry and dull because a new language to me is, is just like taking a new wine or some new sweet pea or something. But certainly, I mean, many people apply to a nuclear, the ring, to particularly the nuclear bomb, don't they? I don't think that was in my mind, the whole thing is only an allegory of it. Well, it isn't. No other book has frightened me quite as much as that. I've never had such a an intense sense of evil. One reviewer once said, this is a jolly, jolly book, isn't it? All the right boys come home and they're always happy and glad. It isn't true, of course. He can't have read the story. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness find them in the land of Mordor where the shadows I invented that in a bath, I remember. Yes, I remember inventing that in one of the baths in 20, when I was having a bath in uh, 20 Moscow Road. I still remember kicking the sponge out of the bath when I got the last time. I think that will do, all right, and jumped out. Then we'll... He and Sam set off back to the Shire, where all the hobbits come from. Tolkien uses the ordinary things that people are afraid of, and he's built up these fears into an immense evil atmosphere. If you really come down to any large story, interest people, for, uh, hold them attention for a considerable time or, or make uh, uh, stories 
practically always a human story, it's practically always about one thing, aren't they? Death. They never to believe in death. I don't know if we do agree with that, but anyway, that is what um, I, there was a quotation from Simon Bourgois there in the paper uh, over there, which seems to me put in a nutshell. I, mean, I, I think I'll read it. Uh, it was apropos of the uh, untimely death of, uh, of, uh, of, um, of a musical composer whom I've all, myself always been extremely fond of, uh, Carl Maria Weber, who died at uh, 39 of um, tuberculosis. And the man who written his um, biography actually quotes these words of Simon. There is no such thing as a natural death. Nothing that happens to man is ever natural, since his presence calls the whole world into question. All men must die, but for every man his death is an accident, and even if he knows it and consents to it, an unjustifiable violation. Well, you may agree with words or not, but those are the are the keyspring of the laws of the ring. The third age was my age. I was the enemy of Sauron, and my work is finished. The burden must lie now upon you and your kindred. And the power of the three rings also is ended. And all the lands that you see and those that lie round about them shall be dwellings of men. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. A tribute to J.R.R. Tolkien, who died yesterday. And with that, we come to the end of our programmes for today. On behalf of all of us here on BBC Two, this is David Allen thanking you for joining us and wishing you a very good night. Good night. From the 12th of September 1965, Blackpool Night Out. And here is Scylla Black singing You're My World with the inimitable Mike and Bernie Winters at the end. everything up now, fellas. Yeah, what a nice girl she is. <laughs> she loved it, yeah. that silly, yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of tonight's show. Yeah, it's also the end of the series.
So we end our TV show, pack our bags, and off we go. Bye, bye, Blackpool. It's a show we won't forget. Have we been paid? Not yet. Not yet. Bye-bye, Blackpool. Goodbye to the beach. Farewell, the town. How oh, we're gonna miss this Sunday hour. No more of that fabulous noise. And this is Richard Beckinsale recorded on the 25th of September 1976. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Fletcher, happy birthday to you. Many happy returns of the day from me, Godber. It's very lonely here in Seltan without you, you know. In fact, the place has gone very quiet indeed. Even Mackay was seen to have developed an emotional sniff. Trust you to wangle a birthday outside as well as Christmas. I suppose you're even looking forward to bank holidays. Have a very nice birthday. We all wish you well here from Slade Prison. And also, very happy birthday from Arthur or Richard Beckinsale. Bye-bye. Sometimes we come across audio recordings to the London Palladium show. And here's a particularly uh, nice bit of Mike Yarwood, which we're playing as a tribute to the man who, of course, has died sadly recently. If there's one topical I forgot, one subject, it's the fact that Harold Wilson has successfully put down his rebels this week with the phrase, every dog is entitled to one bite. I hope he means it because I'm going round to number 10 tomorrow with a mad Alsatian. Against the political comment, I can't do better than the man with a thousand voices, everyone exactly the same, Mr. Mike Yarwood, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, and thank you, Bob. And what a pleasure it is to be back in London. Actually, everything's changed so much since I was last here. You know, I believe now in London they have their own, or the first, actually, the first uh, coloured policeman, and they're going to change the name of that television programme to Dixon Doc Brown. <laughs> That's my best joke. But, however, marvellous to be here, really, at the play. I mean, this is the place. They've all been here, all the stars, haven't they? Big names of this, this theatre. And, of course, one of the biggest names to make his mark in show business is, was this gentleman. Oh, thank you very much, that marvellous welcome. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen and children, welcome to Saturday night that I had a play to you. My name is Norman Vaughan, and... Oh, I feel marvellous, lads. I feel great. I've gone keen fit mad now. I got up this morning, seven o'clock, did a bit of weight lifting, punched the bag, then she got up, brewed the tea, and walked up. <laughs> but really, I can't tell how thrilled I have to introduce this next comedian, Colin. I really have it. It's so funny, really. What do you mean? What do you mean, Diane? Too many hours ago. What are you talking about? I'd like to do it myself. I'll... Oh, 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 oh. Oh, 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 
Oh, what a rush, what a rush. I shouldn't be standing here really, I, mean, I couldn't get a seat. I said to the manager, I want to see the show. He says, you can't, we're full up, we're full up. I said, I'm Tommy Cooper, it shouldn't make any difference, we're full up. I said, Prince Philip came, you'd find him a seat, wouldn't you? He said, yes. I said, well, he's not coming, I'll have it. That's <laughs> Thank you very much. Mind you, when you think about it, it's not only the comics that get the laughs these days, is it? Some of these politicians are a bit of a giggle, aren't they? Some of the things they say. I'm very interested in politics. My father was an MP. He's working now. But um, <laughs> last week on television, I saw the leader of the opposition, Mr Heath, interviewed by that well-known TV personality, Malcolm Muggeridge. This is Heath. Where do you see Muggeridge? <laughs> Teddy. Do you not think in this day and age you may be more successful as a political leader if you took a wife? Well, that of course depends on whose wife I took. And I believe. <laughs> You know, I'm not at all worried about my, my image. And I said to Ian McLeod, to his face, both of them. <laughs> the opinion polls may show me bottom, but I can honestly say that I do have a very marginal seat. Good night. You know, I want to talk to you frankly and honestly on the set. No, don't get up. I suppose a lot of you are very surprised to see me on television on a Sunday evening, as well as every other night in the week. But you know, broadly speaking, and as you know, I often speak broadly, as I said to my very good friend, Mrs. Wilson, What's the milkman got that I haven't got? <laughs> but next week I shall be appearing on Sunday night at the London Palladium. It'll be my last television appearance prior to my coronation. And I... <laughs> I've... I will compare this show, and as you know, there's no one to compare with me. I'd have having Jim Callahan doing his balancing act and finishing off with a little juggling. And I shall be doing my usual ventriloquist act with George Brown. <laughs> it'll be big. <laughs> I will finish up by singing a little song entitled I Want to Hold Your Hand in Russian. But, you know, I must go now, and I must hand you back to the compare for this evening, Mr. Monkhouse, So incidentally, in case you didn't know, tonight his teeth appear by kind permission of Edward Heath. Good night. Thank you very much. Here they are, all Heath teeth back again. That's that was wonderful, Mike Yarwood. You know, Mike really is so 
happy doing those wonderful impressions of his. He's a happy man. And I think each of us finds something different to make them happy. For me, I, I have very simple pleasures. Nothing makes me happier. Let us sit by an open window at sunset, light up a cigarette in my rocking chair, watch the sun go down as I, I sit there smoking and rocking, happy to watch nature's wonders as I rock and I smoke. Of course, that may not sound like much to you, but then you don't know what I'm smoking either, do you? This is another interview from the Kaleidoscope Collection, an interview I conducted, actually, in September 2007 with the very famous playwright Alan Plater. This is Alan talking about his work on Z cars. So there you are, you're writing plays of your own, which, which, which is great. So how do you come to write serials like Z cars, then, mm. where you're taking somebody else's premise, presumably, and they're giving you characters to work with that aren't yours? And do you find that a great conflict, the fact you can't no. The words in the mouth, perhaps. It is a different set of muscles. I mean, the, the Z-Cars thing happened in 63. I mean, I've progressed in 44 years from writing cop shows to writing cop shows. <laughs> so there's a career trajectory for you. Um, now, I got a phone call from my dead agent, Peggy Ramsey. Um, Darling, they'd like you to write for Z-Cars. The reason the invitation came is because a man... This is incredible. A man from the BBC Contracts Department had seen a play of mine at the Victoria Theatre Stoke-on-Trent. Now, the notion these days of anyone from BBC Contrast going to any theatre <laughs> is a bit of a... almost under... But, uh, but yes, it, that's... And he, and he said, this this is a lad. You want this lad on your on the books. Well, words to that effect. And I met John Hopkins, who was then the script editor and also the best writer in British television at the time. And we got on fine. And I said... And I, I knew a little bit. I said, is there a Bible? I knew there were these things called Bibles yeah. that series was supposed to have. He said, not really. He said, there, there were some notes that somebody did when they went to Kirby. Uh, if we can find a copy, we'll let you have them. <laughs> and, uh, and I think I did get these notes. Uh, I said, well, what happens next? When, when you get an idea, write, write it down. No, don't make it too long. You know, one sheet of paper's enough. And I did. And that's all I ever did with any of the said cars I built was a single sheet of paper saying this is what I think the story's about and this is who'll be in it. I mean, what was most important for them was who would be in it because they had to juggle the coppers yeah. Uh, yeah. so that they weren't in consecutive weeks to, and so it was Z Victor 1 or Z Victor 2 and, and so on. And I did, and I, I did this single sheet and they said, that's fine, we'll commission it. Uh, but at that time, to be invited to write for Z Cars was like a papal blessing. Because this yes. was the top show. There'd never been a, a program like it in terms of its effect on, on the audience, on, on everything really, and actually on on, on cop shows to this day. Because we we do know um, that when Stephen Botchko was was preparing Hill Street Blues, he and the team ordered copies of Z Cars episodes from the BBC. And sat and watched them, and they actually studied Z cars. I mean, they probably studied a lot of other things as well. Yeah, sure. But, I mean, my best guess is they studied Ed McBain and the eighty-seven precinct books, but I have no evidence to support. But we do have evidence that they watched Z cars because Daniel Trevanti told Frank Windsor as <laughs> much. They met on an afternoon television program. 
And here's a bit more of Alan talking about his work on the Beidebecker serials. No, what, what happened was that I was commissioned to write a sequel to Get Lost, which I was going to call Get Lost Revisited. And by that time, Alan had gone into Nicholas Nickleby with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I think we might have been on Broadway at that point. And they said, well, if we can't have Alan Armstrong, what are we going to do? We'll have to pull the whole thing. And I said, let's ask Jimmy Bolham. Because I'd worked with Jimmy in radio and kind of knew him socially. On the, it was that a great extended mafia yeah. in exile thing. <laughs> and so Jim read the scripts and I said, we'll, we'll give it a different title. Uh, so I, I rewrote it and it became the Biderbeck Affair. I would have a, a new couple. Were they were they the first chance you got to put jazz in into your work on telly? Um, I suppose Get Lost was probably the first time I did it consciously because that was all the Duke Ellington score. When the music, the main theme was a Duke Ellington piece called Dual Highway, and Frank Ricotti, who did the music, did all the in, you know, the incidental music in the style of a, a small Ellington group. Mm. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was watching that hearing Kenny Baker. Uh, as Cootie Williams and Don Lusher as Lawrence Brown and being very boring. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think it probably was. I'd use, I'd use music, obviously, in Trinity Tales. Yeah, sure. Where, uh, and uh, in Land of Green Ginger, where we used the Watersons, the great traditional uh, singing family from, from Hull as an integral. I mean, they actually mm. determined the story. Um I mean, the, the, the... There was a lot of pep here. I mean, you had Trinity Tales and also Curricula, Curricula. I mean, oh, yeah. Right. Oh, I mean, having, having the music in there, that, they said that, that, was, that they were like musical dramas, really. I yeah, uh, there was a vogue for for rock musicals at the time. I think everybody was doing a rock musical. And, and again, this is a, thing, a very David Rose thing to do. He said, he, would, he put me in a room with Dave Greenslade and said, yeah, why don't you two work together and Dave Greenslade is a keyboard player uh, the quiet man of rock works with a band called Coliseum with John Heisberg and Chris Farlow and um, and we so we duly sat down in a room together and and I listened to some of his music and and we came up with curriculum which was that originally I mean my original title was Spanners Across the Campus because it's about a plumber who's left his spanners on the campus and goes to get them back again. That's the plot. It's never <laughs> heavy with plots. Uh, and then destroys the entire institution in innocence. Were you, were you pleased that the Biderbecker seal became as big as they were? Or did you yeah. think that that sort of restricted you later as to what kind of drama you could write? No, I think, I think if you twist my arm behind my back and say what's the most satisfactory th satisfying thing you've done for the telly is probably the the, whole, the, the bite of it trilogy because more more of it is nearer more of it is what I wanted on the screen yeah than anything you came else back to do a radio story didn't you a few um, I did a, a short story yes um, about when they do Wagner's ring cycle as a school play <laughs> uh a short encounter with Richard Wagner. Did people never try and make you, get you to make some more then? I did. Um, not, I mean, after we did the third series, we had, we had a little meeting in Jim and Barbara and myself, and was it? we thought, quit while you're ahead, which is what all the best television programmes have always done. Yeah. And finally, Alan talking about the fact that he wanted to have a cigarette when he was making programmes like Lewis and Inspector Moore's. 
but he wasn't allowed to smoke in the building, so instead he had to invite people around to his house for production meetings. I mean, the one thing that I picked up over the years is that I get the impression as a writer you've been quite involved with your productions, mm-hmm. in terms of being on the set sometimes and having that ability to, to as, you, as you talked earlier with Lewis about, you know, to change things. Whereas some writers we've had here at events said, you know, I write the script. I send it away. I, I, I don't get involved in casting. Mm-hmm. I don't get involved in production at all, you know. And yeah. Perhaps nowadays you're finding it harder to have that involvement. Perhaps perhaps they're telling you more who they want to have in the show. Mm. You know? um, the, yeah, I mean, for the most part, it's a fairly amicable thing. I mean, the, the, the Lewis episode that starts shooting today, uh, the director came out of the house. We tried to have all the production meetings at our house so we can smoke. Yeah. <laughs> And most people who are working for the broadcasters are, are, are delighted to get away from their buildings. Yeah. Because most of them seem to work in places that are like the Lubyanka. And it's a great relief to go into a proper house with the best coffee in London, obviously, <laughs> and several ashtrays. So, um, no, and so the director, Dan, who's directing it, mm. came round. We had a nice chat. Uh, I emailed him a few casting suggestions and. And he took them very seriously, and we've actually—I mean, I, I know that the, you know, the two principal guests, as it were, are Neil Pearson and Hayden Gwynn, and who are pretty well. That's very on. interesting because it, yeah, I mean, uh, perhaps perhaps you just perhaps it's, it's a mistaken view on my part, but you do seem to have more autonomy in the industry than some of the the people we, we've had here who've come along and said, you know, we get told who we're having, we get told mm-hmm. what we're doing, and that—that's good, isn't it? That. Yeah, it might be just because they're, I'm old and they want to humour me. I don't know. I, oh, I, I, I don't know. I've always taken it for granted that that I should have a bit of a say, uh, and it just seems a sensible thing that I. I mean, and there are writers who I know and are actually not very interested in all of that. Yeah. Oh, I think yeah. I was unusual like, even on the Z cars and the certainly on the softly team. Uh, I remember, I think it was Alan Pryor. Um, Said so to me, you do seem to get, you seem to like actors. So, well, yes, some of my best friends are. Like, mm, he wasn't at all sure about this thing of actually liking actors. Who can get away from talent shows? And in fact, it was no different in the 70s. From the 5th of October 1974, this is a part of the soundtrack to A Lost New Faces show with Arthur Askey on the panel. I must tell you. I must tell you about the auditions that we do for this show. Fantastic. We were all sitting in a big room, and this Liverpool pop group called Snookerball came in. And the producer said, who are you? He said, we're Snookerball. He said, you better come to the front of the queue. This is true. <laughs> and then there was this... There was this Irish underwater accordionist. Sensation. <laughs> he was in this big glass tank, and all of a sudden, the tank burst. And all the Liverpool boys came running over. I thought I'd better give him the kiss of life. I said, quick, support Paddy's head. They went, Paddy's head. Paddy's head. (laughs) So they sat us down to do an intelligence test. And Paddy was copying. And the producer said, you're copying. But he said, I'm not, sir. He said, don't tell lies. He said, I can tell by the answers. Look, question number one, he's got yes and you've got yes. Question number two, he's got no and you've got no. Question number three, he's got don't know and you've got neither do I. 
they threw him out. He went down into the street, he went to the bus stop, he looked up, he said, please kill the other side. So he went over the road and missed the bus. <laughs> Actually, I knew it was going to be good this afternoon. I'll tell you why. Because I'm following good acts. And this is the secret. If you follow a good act, it's easy. And it proved this to me. I was working last week in Cardiff, and I followed an act who was so bad that throughout my entire performance, they kept on booing him. <laughs> they couldn't forget how lousy this fellow was. In fact, people were getting up and walking out on him halfway through my act. <laughs> Actually, no, I normally work with girls, show girls. I said to one the other night, I said, would you like a drink? She said, I'm not allowed to. If I'm found drinking with you, the management deduct money from my wages. I said, how much do you earn? She said, I don't know. She's never been paid. <laughs> I've got to go now, or else I'll finish up in the middle of candy camera or something. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for having me. Before I do go, one final note from Belfast. Remember, there are only 84 more shops left to Christmas. Thank you very much. <laughs> The panel in general like that. I suspect from Tony Hatch that there were maybe too many Irish jokes for you, were there? No, no, that's, uh, normally... that was, the, uh, that was the, the quota. That was all right. But I think that what was most important about Brian, he has contact with his audience. Yeah. And that is always important. Um, some of the material, I mean, some of the gags I've heard before, the jokes are not that original. But he certainly has got that contact. And that goes a long way with, uh, with the comic. Uh, the competition is enormous, of course. <laughs> yeah, I see what he's doing now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can uh, see on my little screen here. Good for you. I've got to leave you and go down the line to Alan Freeman. <laughs> you didn't tell us you were going to do that, did you? No, I'm sure you did. Very good. Alan Freeman. A condemned man. Well, I think he's fabulous. I think he slayed me. I think he's marvellous, and there couldn't be too many Irish gags for me at the moment. I think he's marvellous. Really, Thank I you. do. George Elrigs, do you like Yes, him? I think he's droll. I think he's got a, a lovely line of patter, a great way of delivering. I like him very much indeed, and I think he should go far. Did you get really much of the material down, Arthur Askey? I'm wondering Arthur Askey's got it all down, and he's got it here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's got it all there. Arthur, what did you think about that? I thought he was great. And unlike Tony, perhaps Tony's been around much more than I have. I only recognise you. <laughs> Nobody could be more around <laughs> than you have. I only recognise one gag in his whole routine, and he went through as if that is his routine, because you often see comics get up there and they think, I've got to leave the next one out, it's filthy. But he went right through his routine, smoothly, nicely, confidentially, and I think he's very good indeed. Right, those are very good comments there. Let's see how you all mark. Tony, presentation. Eight. Alan. Nine. George. Nine. And Arthur. And nine. That's uh, 35 then for presentation. <laughs> Contents, Tony. Seven. Alan. Nine. George. Eight. And Arthur. Nine. That's uh, 33 then for content. <laughs> star quality, Tony. Eight. Alan. I'm sure I'll make it nine. George. I'm going to make it ten. And Arthur? Well, I think he's got the quality of Ronald Franco and Norton Wayne, and I'm going to give him ten. That's a total, then, of 105. <laughs> 105, then. Right. Well, 
as a young man who seems to be going places already. We're going to take a short break, but in a moment we'll be back with a couple more acts for you to hear from the panel. And I wonder whether or not Brian Back will still be in front. We'll see you then. Now, it may surprise you to learn that what the papers say doesn't actually run every single year, though it does seem to have gone on forever. This is an extract from an edition on the 24th of October, 1968. Good evening. Let's ferret among the creeping tentacles of bureaucracy and take a look at how the papers are preserving that seven and six word freedom. Broadcasting is too important to be left to the broadcasters. Have you ever heard such rubbish? But let's cast a glance at today's sun. New Vatican storm over Jackie. Uh, what are the papers trying to do? Stir it up? Sterling shame, why it won't happen again. A running fight between the Express and the record over a nine-year-old boy. One humbug, mugwump of a paper has constantly made a virtue of the fact that it has never published the name of the boy or the foster parents. The Daily Record can't have liked that word, mugwump. But with a rare, earlier-than-now petulance, it has claimed all along it has known all the facts. And Monday's record carried a leader. At the very start of this unhappy story, the Daily Record was aware of the full facts about the boy we called Sid. And the record takes a mighty bash at its rival. More than 20 columns of the Express have been filled since April with a campaign of abuse against the local authority. Does it help the named or unnamed boy? I doubt it. But at least we can see that dog does bite dog. And in a week when we've had a parliamentary bill presented to prevent our four-legged friends mauling postman's trousers... The Savoyateur last night sedately abandoned his large-dish battle against the dreaded... Say that word again? Dreaded trouser suit. What had happened in the antediluvian past? Women in trouser suits were given their walking orders. A sort of freedom for women. And yes, I'm coming to the, the continuing story of Jackie Kennedy, but Women's Week and another stalwart in the news... Judith Hart, given key post in Cabinet. Another bit of freedom and emancipation. The Glasgow Herald tells about her job, the, the job that Harold gave her. To study nationalism and student unrest. Mrs Hart is 44, charming, talented and attractive. And she's now our... Paymaster General. Or shouldn't it be Paymistress General? But let's get back to a bit of femininity. The minister wears scent and eyeshadow and lipstick. Uh, says the record's Ellen Graham going on. A fact to which many of my colleagues have reacted with surprised delight and yelps of... Good God, she's got ankles. <laughs> yes, I'm coming to Mrs Manassas. But first, let's look at the possibility of a woman occupying the fortress of 10 Downing Street. Britain will one day have a woman Prime Minister. And who says so? Mr Richard Crossman. Uh, who is our new Minister of Social Services and a more deft handler of the spoken word would be hard to find. Why Britain is likely to have a woman PM. And why, according to Mr Crossman? The day will come when it is realised that the qualities required of a Prime Minister are more often found in women. And what are these qualities? A good judge of character, ability to listen, the knowledge of when not to act and when to act. So who are the two front runners in the race? Hey, Jude. Judith won't wear trendy skirts. Mrs Hart draws the line, so to speak, at attracting under 21 votes to Labour. I have no intention of turning up my skirts another two inches to be trendy. Well, that's one candidate that won't compromise on her way to the hot seat. And what of the other? Be Premier, not me, says Barbara. Uh, now, Mrs Castle is not the coyest of women. She's got passionate ambition. She wouldn't be there if she hadn't. But... I have no ambition to be Prime Minister. Uh, but asked if she wouldn't come round to it if the country wanted a woman Prime Minister. She thought for a long time, then hedged mightily. I'm... 
not answering that one. It's privilege. Yes, we'll get to Greece and £10 wedding rings from millionaires in a minute. But talking of female privilege... Undergraduates at Trinity College, Cambridge, are to be allowed to take girlfriends to dinner at the college. Bully for them, and what makes this snippet addedly newsworthy? The Prince of Wales is studying at the college. And so to the Prince of Wealth and his bride. Mrs Onassis. First picture of Jackie's wedding, hand in hand with Aristotle. It's a beezer of a story. It's got everything. A beautiful woman, a Greek millionaire, the tragic aftertaste of an assassinated president, the outrage of the Roman Catholic Church, police fighting with newsmen trying to storm a private island, tears and jewels and lavish opulence beyond our comprehension and... A boatload of journalists ran the blockade, landed on the beach. And the press... Sent a bouquet to Jackie. That bunch of flowers will be on the News of the World expenses sheet. All right, it was a rather obvious ruse to get a foot in the chapel door. Intrusion into private happiness, if you like. But the world was waiting on the story, and newsmen were having to contend with guns guard wedding island, as the mail said. Tonight, his personal police moved into action to keep at bay the journalists and gawpers converging on the area from all over the world. Oh, what's wrong with gawping when you've got a technicolor set-up like this, but some of the comment in the papers made me heave. What makes a woman love Harry? Having preserved us, what makes a woman love any man? Happiness is being married to an older man. The Sunday Mail, illustrating its point with photographs of disparately aged couples, while the Daily Mail had a similar theme. Their hearts belong to Daddy. According to the Mail... French girls apparently don't much fancy trendy young men. Uh, there was the element of the ridiculous in the nuptial. Dance of Isaiah round altar. An old Greek custom, and rain poured down on the happy couple. But that wasn't bad, because it went... Future fertility and riches. Well, neither of them are short of a few bob. And tonight's evening citizen proclaims... Onassis may lose his citizenship. Uh, something to do with his tenuous Argentine connection. <laughs> then we have a few sober newspaper words. If she wants to marry Mr. Onassis, it's none of my business. George Gale in the mirror with whom I thoroughly agree. But he goes on to talk of 90 fair-paying passengers being thrown off a plane on the Olympic airline controlled by Anassis. It is this sort of thing that makes the rich nasty. It's this sort of use of their power that is both ignorant and offensive. Uh, then the ecclesiastics move in. The church may now brand her... A public sinner. Poor Jackie. From eminence to excommunication. But she's got a friend in Cardinal Cushing, the 73-year-old Archbishop of Boston. Today's mail quotes him. The idea of saying she's excommunicated, that she's a public sinner, what a lot of nonsense. And the good cardinal draws his justification from the deity himself. Only God knows who is a sinner and who is not. And he goes on angrily. Why can't she marry whoever she wants to marry? Why not indeed? The cartoonist had a marvellous time. Darling, what a wonderful wedding present. The new Queen Elizabeth is my personal yacht. And Franklin in the mirror took up the impossible wealth theme with a happy couple on a spaceship headed for the moon. He's a romantic, secluded, and if you like it, I'll buy it. But if Jackie is gently shackled to the man of her choice, let us beware of any attempt to shackle us by the politicians. The politicians and television. Uh, the Financial Times and Express, Tim Hewitt, who has uh, skillfully produced about a thousand political and current affairs programs, said of Wedgie Ben and Dick Crossman, both were talking a lot of pompous nonsense. The row over the so-called triviality of TV politics. Let's hear the main quote again. Broadcasting is too important to be left to the broadcasters. A daft remark by our wedgie which brought an immediate and definite response from Ray Gunter. Ben frightens me. And me.
But let's give the last word on the subject to Mr. Peter Black of the Daily Mail. If the public has learned a contempt for politicians, it is through their appearances on television, not through television's handling of them. Freedom is precious. Let's keep it. Good night. We're nearly at the end of October, and we're going back to one of our earliest ever audio recordings donated to Kaleidoscope. It's a bit ropey in quality, but we'll do the best we can to improve it. This is Mystery Imagination from the 22nd of October, 1966. Let's scare yourself silly in Room 13. The fire of Ivor was in 1726. Destroyed practically all the medieval city. A tragedy. And if you have a handsome new cathedral, sir. Cathedral should be old and beautiful, not you and handsome. If you started on the punch, I'll go in it. I think it you're finished with the coffee. Yes, thank you for all my You still have a few interesting old buildings left. The uh, Golden Lion, for instance. Lord, the pity. Rumala stood in me severely for the of the Golden Lion. I assure you, it's an excellent inn for Mala. A very comfortable room. I have nothing against the Golden Lion as such, I beg it. But to my mind, it's a pity that when they turned the place into an hotel, they didn't make a proper job of it and pulled down all of what was there before. Our housekeeper does appear to share your love of ancient. Hello. Did we go old Dunkender? A mixture of Protestant piety and primitive superstition. Cleanliness, if not to godliness. Old houses are full of cobwebs and spiders. So, they must be haunted by the devil into the bargain. I must remember that for my chapter of the spirit of Protestant Denmark, sir. And it's changed very little in the 350 years of its history. We did go to the archives of his part. And they showed us some letters apart between Bishop Jorgen Rees, the last Catholic Bishop of Iborg, and a certain Rasmus Anderson. Rasmus Anderson? Yes. He was the leader of the local Protestant sect, and a stern, fearless man of God. Rather like your own, um, hundred years later, uh, uh, um, Oliver Cromwell. Uh, how the bishop was a very wealthy man. He owned a great deal of property in Iborg. Uh, one of his houses was lit to a man called, um, called, uh, Franken. Uh, this Franken, according to Anderson, was, uh, a disgrace to the city. He practiced secret and wicked rites and made a pact with the devil. You'll find the correspondence very interesting. <laughs> Now, Anderson brought down the wrath of God on the Church of Rome for arguing the devil worship. And, uh, and the bishop thundered back with sound and fury. This furious old dog. In the old year, uh, the, uh, the initials and the uh, sentiments expressed in the title of Omni Spiritus Laudet Diabolum. The whole spirit of spirit praises the devil. The eyes of 
What a blasphemous atrocity it is. Yeah, 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 you know, your friend, Brad, with that, that's known to approve your moral indignation. Who won that battle of wit? Either did it have any. Because in the middle of all the fuss, uh, Nicholas Franklin died, struck down by the Almighty, according to the bishop's enemies. But if that were so, the devil got his revenge. With Rathbus Anderson and his family had no luck in Bible after that. Rathbus suddenly died in the prime of life. His son Jacob went mad and killed himself. And his grandson, another Rasmus, fled the country. Though whether that was to escape the family curse or the troubled times is uncertain. Why did he go? Oh, to where all honest Protestants would be worth the little bit, my friend. The England of York. But Queen Beth. And to play us out of October, here again from the Adrian Bishop Luckett Collection, is a Georgia Brown TV concert recorded on the 6th of October, 1968. Take it away, Georgia. If your memory serves you well, we were going to meet again and wait. So I Before it gets too late No man alive will come to you With another tale to tell You know that we will meet again If your memory serves you well This wheel's on fire Rolling down That's it for October 2023. 
My thanks to my glamorous assistant, Naresh, who's been here providing me with snacks and drinks throughout. And I'll see you all in November. Bye. Bye.